0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle-aged warriors, Chris Semino and Rick Summers. Hey, welcome to another
1: episode of Middle-aged Warriors. Actually, a very special episode. I'll I'll give you a little bit of a hint. Let's see if this will (laughs) work.
2: this guy brought props
1: uh, you know, now rick and i are big big med fans longtime suffering fans but we've got a very special guest today we're going to get to in just a little bit
2: for the first time in any of our lives we are living a summer with no baseball which is really bizarre and our special guest today is somebody i've had the great fortune of knowing for a couple of decades now which is hard to believe we were kids actually we weren't kids
1: <laughs> relatively
2: but now we're big kids and we'd like to welcome New York Mets Hall of Fame pitcher and uh, friend to the show, Queens, New York native, St. John's baseball graduate, John Franco of the New York Mets. And John, welcome on board. And thank you so much for joining us. Welcome Middle-Age Warriors.
3: How you guys doing? Uh, it's uh, some trying times right now, but uh, we're all getting through it. We're trying to figure it out. And uh, the older we get, we're supposed to be smarter. I don't know how <laughs> much smarter I am now than I was a couple of years ago. But trying to stay safe and sound and and uh, ride this storm out. Just get ready for this to, to be over with.
1: Yeah, we I, we're all in the in the boat, unfortunately. But you know, this is the time of year. I know as a baseball fan for so many years, I've always looked forward to, you know, baseball was sort of the rebirth of a new season, new opportunity, new chances, a fresh beginning. We're looking at this right now at 2020 baseball season, certainly uh, in jeopardy. But I don't know what, you know, what you're hearing. Uh, the latest I heard that they're planning on doing something for MLB this season. When, how it plays out, uh, there seems to be a lot of question marks. What do you know about that right now, John?
3: Um, I probably just, I know, just as much as you guys do. You know, I just read up on some stuff. But, uh, you know, just hearing some from friends who are friends of someone where, you know, hopefully by July, you know, if they can work this, uh, this agreement out, uh, I don't think it has much to do with the salaries that their players are really complaining about. I think it has to do with safety and making sure that their health is the number one concern. I think that's what the players are really concerned about. And obviously salary too, but I think that's another one, you know, uh, going to the ballpark and your temperature take on the road, how, how things, you know, life is going to be so different. Uh, guy, when they go down the road, uh, from what I heard, they want everybody to stay from the, the fifth floor down. So guys don't have to take the elevator. They can take the stairs and then if a certain area for them to, to eat in and mm-hmm. certain, a certain area for them to, to hang out in. And then if they want to go out, they got to the ask ex- permission to go somewhere. So it's, 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 totally different, uh, different lifestyle that the players are going to have. But the first and foremost thing I think is that you have to make sure that the safety is first for the players and everyone else involved in getting the great game of baseball back. So uh, I'm hoping that they could come to some type of solution and hoping that uh, within two weeks uh, or another week or so, June will be here and spring, second spring training will be <laughs> starting. But my other thing is I was just thinking about this the other day was, you know, I talked about the players, what about the players who live in, Dominican Republican or Venezuela that went home and have to come back, are they going to be quarantined for 14 days? Right. That's another, that's another step that uh, I was thinking about. I'm sure they they, they they talked about this, but that was something that I was thinking about myself. I wonder how they're going to work that out because those players will have to be somewhere for 14 days and then join the team in spring training where it's already going to be two and a half, three weeks of spring training. So mm-hmm. these, are, these are the little things that they, they're going to have to figure out along the way.
1: Yeah, there are so many facets to, to making the move forward to start a season. And, you know, the other part of it, forget that, having to have somebody come, you know, have fans actually come into the stadium. I mean, the players are just dealing with, I heard one of the things on that list was also they don't want them showering at the ballpark. (laughs) <laughs> they wanted them to shower before coming and leave. It's like, it sounds sense. funny, but, I mean, what are we doing here?
3: You know, uh, you know what? Maybe they shower two at a time or three at a time and use every other shower stall. Yeah, so you know that. <laughs> I can't see you know, it. That would be like Little League, you know, when you play like right. three games on a weekend and you're <laughs> in the morning and you play three games and you're full of dirt and you're still right. in all this car full of dirt and then you go home and take a shower and you're in that uniform from 9 o'clock to frigging 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Exactly. Oh. You know, as much as the guys work out and as much uh, preparation they have or pre-preparation they have before the game, uh, it would be hard to ask the guys not to shower before the game and even after the game.
2: John, what was it like the first time you put on a Major League Baseball uniform?
3: It fitted well, that's for sure, you know.
2: <laughs> they looked a lot different back then too, didn't they? It.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, it was great. First Major League uniform was with the Cincinnati because I was in the Major Leagues with them, but the first professional uniform was with the Dodgers when I got drafted by the Dodgers. So putting that uniform on, a first professional uniform, meant that I reached one of my goals. And one of my goals was to, you know, go to college, have successful in college, and try to get drafted. I did get drafted by the Dodgers. And then my goals from there were try to spend one year on each level and then get to the big league. Fortunately for me, it worked out. I spent two and a half years in the minor leagues, and I got traded along the way. Then in the big leagues with the Reds. And putting on that Cincinnati Reds uniform, as you can see, I have my Cincinnati yeah.
0: shirt
3: What a coincidence. <laughs> but uh, just to put on a shirt, you know, and I grew up as a Johnny Bench fan. You know, Johnny Bench was like one of my favorite players growing up besides the Met players that I grew up watching. And to put on a Cincinnati uniform and then be in the same locker room with uh, Dave Concepcion and uh, Ken Griffey, senior and uh, Tony Perez. Uh, These are the guys I watched growing up and now I'm sharing a locker room with them. It meant uh, meant that I I got where I wanted, you know, halfway down first base, but I'm still not around, you know, around the whole cycle yet. So it was one step at a time, but I was happy to put that uniform on. Uh, It was one of my goals. And now it's just up to me to try to achieve that goal.
2: I remember the big red machine of the mid-70s yeah. when we were teenagers. And gosh, when I think back to those days and how much fun baseball was, and they used to play afternoon games in the World Series and stuff like that. So different now. So,
3: used to play doubleheaders on Sunday.
1: Yeah, right? I remember how that. How about Twini doubleheaders? That's, that's gone by. It's, everything that was two admissions if you play a doubleheader. They have <laughs> the stadium, there's a that? you know going back a little bit you know i played a lot of baseball i was on a couple of all-star teams but to be perfectly honest i mean i never sniffed it so to speak i mean it wasn't even close and i played with a lot of guys that were good ball players and they never sniffed it and the point being you had to be so good the competition was so high you had to be so much better than the players you were around now when you started pitching from what i heard at st john's university you pitched two no hitters in your freshman year is that true
3: yeah, I pitched a total of two no-hitters my freshman year and then another no-hitter my junior year. So I had a total of three no-hitters at St. John's University. Uh, so was was that the point, though, when you start to go
1: in your head, or were you already
3: kind of feeling, hey, I've got a real
1: genuine shot, or did you just think, I'm a pretty damn good ball player compared to the guys around me? But when you did that, did you start to feel, I've got something that might be the real deal that's going to take me to the big
3: show? Well, I kind of I kind of felt that way in high school, you know, because I okay. heard all the, the you know, the, the whispers that I might be getting drafted out of high school. And at high school, I dominated in high school as a pitcher and a hitter. And uh, when the draft came around, I, I, heard, I found out that, you know, through the word of mouth, some scouts that I was a little too small to be drafted. And, and probably the best thing for me was to go to St. John's to get a little stronger and when I did go to St. John's, that's where I learned how to pitch. And uh, we had a great pitching coach named Howie Gersberg, who uh, who tooled me and Frank Viola there. So we were both there oh. together. And he, I owe a lot of my success to Howie, and I'm sure Frank would say the same thing. He taught us how to pitch. You know, I was I was a thrower in high school. You know, when you're a little bit better than guys, you can get by that stuff. But in college, you you, you won't. I remember the first time I stepped on the mound at St. John's. I got lit up like a Christmas tree I got lit up <laughs> three to the third string catcher, And I said, holy cow, this is, this isn't high school no more. So I knew I had my work cut out and how he really uh, worked with me. And uh, the physical part of me, I had, it was the mental part that you had. And you have to be mentally strong. I feel mentally strong as a professional player, whatever sport you play, whether it's baseball, football, whatever. And you have to be mentally strong and then desire. My heart was as big as Texas. So I, I didn't want anybody to get a hit off of me. I never wanted to give up a hit. Never wanted to give up a run. And that's why, that was my mentality. And if I didn't do well, I would be more hard on myself than anything else.
2: You know, it's interesting, John, in just doing a little research on your career, and looking at various pictures that pop up on Google or wherever. You are always smiling. You are always—you are always the guy having a great time when you put on that uniform and went between the lines.
3: Yeah, it's. Uh, there were times I was smiling, quite a bit. Of times I was smiling because I had a good time, but there was a, there there was also that shit ass grin that I had when I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I to, you know, well, as wife. a fan, like I can tell you, I remember seeing that a couple of yeah, times. <laughs> my, my wife, and my family, and, and to this day, they said, "Why would you smirk and smile on a mouth? Because I asked "You know, I just said because I screwed up, and I'm just saying, what an idiot, you know, you know, and stuff like that." So, uh, but I always had fun at the ballpark. I mean, you're with. They're they're like your second family, the players, you know, whether it's college or pros or whatever, you know, you're in spring training in February and with them until October, November. So you gotta have as much fun as you can and stay loose. But once the games start, uh, everything gets serious. Yeah.
1: But but that's good to hear that this is something that, you know, kids dream of growing up to become a major league ball player. You should still have some fun with it, even when you get there. I mean, it's it's business, but it should still be fun. It is a game after all, you know, I want to to go to some numbers real quick though, John, because they're really impressive Uh, for people who may not know uh, who are listening in about your career. You had 424 career saves. That's fifth all time in major league history and most by a left-hander. And I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff. Just that there alone. Now you were known, or at least when I was a kid watching and that is a kid, I was your age uh, watching, they would say, Oh, he's got a screwball." But the fact was, it wasn't a screwball, was it? It was, uh, no. what was it? It was We're a
3: circle, circle change. Right. And, uh, I developed that pitch when I was with the Dodgers. One of my minor league pitching coaches was Dave Wallace, who, mm-hmm. uh, who, I, who I think is a great pitching coach. And I've had him two times, once with the Dodgers, and then once with the 2000 Mets, he was our pitching coach. And he, I learned a lot from Dave, Sandy Koufax, and Larry Sherry while I was in instructional league. They uh, They kind of showed me the grip. Uh, and I remember the first time I threw it, I threw it o- almost over the backstop because I couldn't <laughs> do it. it was something that I just really couldn't do. And they just kept telling me, just keep throwing it, keep throwing it. And then when I got traded to Cincinnati, we had a, uh, a, a relief pitcher, starting pitcher. He was a minor league pitching instructor named Freddie Norman, a little lefty pitcher. And he had a good change up and he would tinker a little bit with me. And when I got to the big leagues with Cincinnati, Mario Soto, who was probably one of the best right-handed relief pitchers, at, uh, starting pitchers at the time, had the best changeup I ever seen. And I would sit on the bench and I would watch him and the way he tinkered in and the way, I mean, Mario could tell you the, the changeup was coming and you still couldn't hit it. And I would talk with mm-hmm. him and I talked to one of my favorite people in the world, one of my mentors is uh, Tom Hume. He was a relief pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. He won the Rollers relief Pitcher years ago with the Reds and I would sit with them and just talk with them and pick their brains. And the more I threw it, the more comfortable I got. And I think the following spring, when I got into a camp with the Reds, I pitched in a simulated game against uh, Cesar Cedaniel, Tony Perez, Ken Griffey mm-hmm. senior. Uh, 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 I'm trying to figure out who else was there. There was one other guy there and I, they didn't get any hits off me. I made them look kind of foolish with it. And I thought I should have made the team out of camp there, but it was two weeks that I had to go back to AAA, but that pitch, that pitch developed that I threw was a changeup. It was almost similar to a screw ball where it sink away from righties or sink straight down. And and quite a few times during my career, a lot of players thought I was throwing a forkball. ball. And I would say, yeah, it's a forkball. whatever you, whatever they say, <laughs> I don't want- You
2: have just- to be careful when you say that in Boston, by the way, because <laughs> it sounds
3: wrong. <laughs> so that, that pitch, that was my bread and butter pitch. Uh You know, I, I my velocity when I first came up was 92, 93 miles an hour, which was pretty good. But that was my out pitch. And uh, now 92, 93 miles an hour is like a change up to something. <laughs> of- <laughs> <No, really. laughs> John, what's it like
2: growing up as a Mets fan and then ultimately getting traded to the Mets?
3: You know, growing up, like I said, but they were that was my team, you know, the 69 Mets, obviously, you know, Tug McGraw was one of my favorite players. Tom Seaver was my favorite player. Tommy AG I mean, I could probably name the whole team for you right now. You know, going to the stand, I remember I had a private tryout, pitching tryout, pitching in front of Joe Torrey was the manager of the Mets at the time, and Joe uh-huh. Pitano was the bullpen coach, and Joe Pitano lived in Brooklyn, not too far from where I grew up, mm-hmm. and I was throwing in the bullpen and throwing for them, and I remember I unleashed a wild pitch. You know, I almost hit Doug Flynn in the head. Cause he was wearing <laughs> a cowboy hat. So, but uh, growing up, you know, that, that was my team and I, you know, I lived out my dream. You know, I, I think the thing that prepared me to play in New York was six years in Cincinnati. Mm. Cincinnati is a great baseball town, small, conservative town, but mm-hmm. they love their baseball. And I would come to the Shea stadium you know, twice a year at the time when the schedules were were, were, were like that. And, I got used to you know, seeing what it was like, uh, obviously growing up here and seeing what the New York fans are like, and, and that prepared me to, to play here in New York, but uh, growing up, that was, that was my dream, and that's every kid's dream. Uh, I remember being in Cincinnati, and Barry Larkin, Paul O'Neill, Buddy Bell, Ron Oster, those guys were from the Cincinnati area, and they were playing for their hometown team, and I said, wow, that's great, man, I would love to play for the Mets, you know, or you know, even the Yankees, and there was talk that I was going to get traded to the Yankees. And that winter I did get traded when the general manager from the Reds called me up, and said, you've been traded to New York. I thought it was the Yankees. And I hung up and I said, I've been traded to New York. And then 10 minutes later, Joe McIlvain, who was our GM for the Mets, called me and said no it's the Mets. So I was even ecstatic. I was so happy about that.
1: About Cincinnati, I had a couple of questions to ask you because I spent a couple of years there in my career, a little bit after you had left. And to be <laughs> honest, an Italian from New York and Cincinnati there are not too many of us floating around there, are there? Oh, no. La Rose's Pizza. <laughs> I was going to, oh, that, that's that exactly where I was going. I was going to say, I would ask around, where can I get some good pizza? And they say, La Rosa's. but let's be honest, John, oh. come on. Not even, <laughs> no I, offense, La Rosa's. Forget
2: it. about it.
3: I used to drive to Covington to get Pizza Hut instead.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and that, but, but that's really what it came down to when you were there. But the other thing you did point out, that town loved their sports teams, and especially the Reds. Opening day, they had a parade. Yeah. Every opening home opener, like it was a parade on top of everything. It really was, yeah. it was a great baseball town. It, it
3: was, you know, I've, years ago, Cincinnati was known to play the first game of the season before right. the season starts. So that's why they had the big parade, the big, you know, hoopla or whatever. And also my time there, I you know, Pete Rose was my manager. What other guy, what, wow. what, I, I grew up watching Pete Rose and now he's my manager. And wow. playing for Pete was great. You know, he had two rules, play hard and be on time. And he was great to play for. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that he's not in the Hall of Fame because I believe he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So hopefully down the road they'll, they'll put him in. But it was a great town, like you said, Chris. Uh, you know, the steaks, the steakhouses were great there. Oh, yeah. And yeah, no, Montgomery Ridge. Ribs. Remember the Montgomery ribs? ribs. Yeah. I, I was there a couple of years ago for the All-Star game, and my wife and I took my youngest child back with us, and we were reminiscing about the – where we live. We live right across the street from the stadium and it's still there. But the whole downtown area now is all changed. the That's waterfront changed. all bars and everything on the, on the river. And then we went to Montgomery Inn to eat ribs and they're still the same. They're still excellent.
1: Now, one last question about Cincinnati food. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about this, uh, Rick, because there's something there called skyline chili. And when I first, they first took, took me to this place. I'm like, what, it, it looks like the mud scraped from the bottom of the Mississippi and they throw it on spaghetti. And then they call it a three-way and a four-way, which conjured up complete other things in my head. But anyway, <laughs> and they put up they put beans and then raw onions as like a four-way and then oh. did you ever did you ever indulge in that? Never touched it.
3: Never Smart <laughs> fact. <laughs> Never put that's, chili on pasta, that's for sure. <laughs> that's
2: like in Rochester, New York. I don't know that you've ever played minor league ball up there, but they had something called the garbage plate, which was nachos with all kinds of stuff. I went to school in Central New York. And Chris, you worked in Rochester, too. I worked
3: in Rochester as well. Yeah, I've been around. Let's. Yeah, let's, really, you've made the rounds. <laughs> yeah, with the Skyline Chili, you could have it. You could have it. I, I wasn't a big fan.
2: <laughs> hey, John, um, when you were a little kid growing up in Brooklyn, did you collect baseball cards and trade them with your friends and put them in yeah. your bikes, posts, and stuff like that? What was that like?
3: Yeah, we. Uh, I grew up in a housing projects, Marlboro projects. And a group of guys that I grew up with were, you know, they were my, I mean, whatever season it was, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. We Thank even, you. We even had roller derby. We played roller derby. We used to <laughs> we used to tape, used to tape uh, magazines around our forearms and hit each other in the head with that. <laughs> so we Bill Groh, Remember a guy named Bill Groh and Mike Gannon. They were the guys. Uh, oh yeah, Mike Gannon. But uh, yeah, we traded cards. We put them in our bikes. We did uh, You know, I wish I had some of those cards back. You know, and all of us had older brothers. Uh, all our older brothers were like five years or four years older than us, and they used to beat the heck out of us. <laughs> quick side note to the story was. As we got older, 17, 18 years old, we challenged our older brothers and we wind up giving two concussions and a cracked ribs to our older brothers. So let's pay (laughs) back for all the times that we got beat up.
1: (laughs) I was gonna say, you can tell the difference. John being in Brooklyn, they would, they put magazines around their, their arms. By me in Queens, it was like paper towels. You could see the difference. It's just, Queens of Brooklyn, the tough guys were all from Brooklyn, always.
2: John, you used to have an incredible memorabilia collection, as I remember in your house out in Staten Island from years ago. What is the, the greatest piece of memorabilia that you have, whether it's a uniform you wore or something you got from Sandy Colfax or, or something like that?
3: Well, I have, uh, when I was with the Dodgers, uh... Roy Campanello is one of the, uh, the instructors talking to the catchers, and I got an autographed baseball from him. Laurie wow. Wills autographed baseball from Willie Mays, Yogi Berra. So I have quite a bit of like, a Pete Rose, I have an autographed Pete Rose uh, ball and the, the bat. One of the bats, you know, the bats he signed for all the players. Tony Gwynn jersey that he signed. Oh, me. Wow. Uh, George Brett. I mean, I, my collect. I have a pretty good collection of uh, memorabilia which is in storage right now but uh yeah, that's just a few i mean i have so many more baseballs and bats you know eddie murray uh ozzy smith signed a glove and a, a bat wow. ricky henderson signed a base for me wow. and so ricky ricky would not never sign for nobody but uh, being i was one of his teammates he signed it for me but stuff like that i've had and uh, obviously sandy koufax a ball from sandy koufax uh don drysdale when he was a man uh, announcer for the uh, the dodgers so uh, i have quite a bit of a Pretty pretty good collection. Pretty impressive, yeah.
1: So for you, there was a day, I I read this story, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, They gave you a John Franco day back in 1996. It was May 11th. It was to celebrate your 300th career save. And something happened during that game that
3: uh, apparently you were not
1: allowed to uh,
3: (laughs) close because what happened? That's not one of my proudest moments. I'm kind of embarrassed about that. Uh, They were honoring me for my 300th save. And I remember my wife and my daughter, no, my oldest daughter, Nicole, were there. And I guess there was, I think it was in May. And it was my, my daughter's birthday, so we had some of our friends in one of the suites. And it just so happens, we oh, wow. were having a big fight against the Cubs. And uh, I got thrown out of that game and <laughs> for fighting. Where, you know I was in the middle, somebody accidentally hit me in the face, and I got mad. And then my uniform was all messy. I had a little scrape under my eye. I'll never forget, uh, Bob Davidson was the umpire. And he said, I uh, came over to the dugout. and He started pointing at the guys, you, you, and you, and uh-huh. you, gone. And I says, why? And he said, look at you. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, that, was, that was pretty embarrassing. If I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it. But I was... Uh, pretty pretty embarrassed for, for myself doing that. Well at least you would have talked
1: your shirt in and maybe not got thrown out.
3: That really- <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't I- mean to bring that up. I'm sorry. You always gotta uh, you know stand by your teammates, that's for sure. No, no. and that's that, that spoke to your heart. And that's you know, that's John. John, Thomas. I
2: have a question for you and I've always fantasized about what it'd be like to be a major league athlete and to open a package of in your case, baseball cards the first time you saw your baseball card. Well, the, what was that like?
3: It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. I remember uh, in spring training, the uh, representative from Topps baseball card used to come around and have you sign like a contract. That Topps was the, the baseball card company that they were representing, and you would get uh, you know baseball cards, and they would pay you like I think it was seventy-five dollars. Their images and uh it's pretty cool you know you open the card you get the little piece of bubble gum in there and then uh i remember those and, and then after a while they just started coming more and more they're all different companies and you know, hundreds right. of thousands of cards and uh, people sending them to your to your to the stadium they send them to your house so it's just kind of hard to keep up with a lot of that stuff but it was it was pretty cool i didn't i didn't put it in one of my bicycle spokes that's for sure
2: <laughs> good idea Do you still have your rookie card
3: uh, I'm, I have quite a bit of, a, of my rookie cards and some my rookie uniform, uh, my first save, my first win, stuff like that I still have, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So now going through your career with the Reds, you played
1: on some very good ball clubs there, but you always finished in second place. Yeah. So then you can turn to the Mets, and it really took until, I guess, 1999 for you to get the postseason, and then finally by 2000, the first time in the World Series, the Subway Series at that. What was that like for you, especially being a native New Yorker?
3: Uh, It was great. You know, I I think leading up to that, you know, when they had all the Interleague, the Interleague started in 96, 97, I believe. So we used to play the Yankees quite Mm -hmm. often. So that was almost like our World Series then, you know, the bragging rights in New York. Back when they first started, it was only, uh, you only play the Yankees three times a year. It would be uh, Yankee Stadium this year and Shea Stadium the next year. But then they went to six times. So I always felt that if we didn't have the Interleague and it wound up like that, I think it would have been more exciting more electrifying, the city would have went totally nuts, even though they did go nuts for Mm -hmm. that particular time. But, you know, we played each other so many times because of the interleague. But it was great. I thought it was great. The, the, the city shut down, the Yankee fans, Met fans were great. Riding over to Yankee Stadium in a police escort with the, shutting down the Grand Central Parkway, going over the bridge, <laughs> going into Yankee Stadium, all the Yankees fans telling us that we were number one and all that stuff, you know. Very <laughs> nice. I'm just gonna jump in
2: for a second uh, and remind you that you're listening to Rick and Chris, middle-aged warriors, and our very special guests. And I really do want to put that in quotes. John Franco, uh, former Major League Baseball player and uh, middle-aged warrior like like Chris and I, and uh, John, in playing ball, did you have superstitions?
3: Yeah, well, I always wore the. My father passed away of a heart attack. You guys know that, and, uh, right? He was one of the main reasons why I always played ball. He he was there for me all the time. So when he passed away, he worked for this department of sanitation. So I always wore his orange shirt under my uniform. I wore the same uh, the same underwear washed of course but, uh,
0: good and, uh,
3: okay always, always uh two pieces of gum before i went in the game so that was my superstition a little bit the oh. same shirt same the, my game underwear you know, i had i had batting practice underwear game underwear same bike, <laughs> okay. uh, same glove i used the same glove for like almost 12 years until a friend of mine who started working for rollins asked me to wear his glove rollins glove. so uh i had the you know baseball players had superstitions i played with a guy named rob murphy Whose grandmother bought him silk shorts, silk underwear, and he used to wear them underneath his uniform. Oh man, I'm sure I'm sure he didn't get chided uh, at all. i about
1: that. I'm sure the guys let him go, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah A lot of players have superstitions. You know, Turk Wendell that was used to jump over the, the, the foul line. Yeah chew gum, whatever, you know, the guys had certain superstitions. So, we're talking
1: about, you know, the the premise of the show, middle-aged warriors. Now, as a baseball career player is what you, I mean, basically you were starting, what, Little League, five years old, you're playing your first games? Yeah. So, baseball is your childhood, then it's your adult life, and then you reach a point, and it was, I guess, 2000, coming out of 2001, going to 2002, you suffered an injury. You didn't play at all in 2002, correct?
3: I had uh, had Tommy John surgery,
1: right? Because so at that point, and at that point, you're forty years old, forty-one years old. What's going on in your head in trying to perceive yourself as maybe no longer being a professional baseball player? What was that process like for you?
3: It did that. That thought really never came to my head at that particular time because I was in a. I think I was in the middle. Like I had just signed a three-year contract at age forty, so I was or forty-one. So I was. Still thinking about okay. Let me get the surgery, rehab, and come back, and that's that was my goal. So it took me a year and two weeks to come back from that that surgery, well, and wow. uh, I came back. I was the same. I didn't have my velocity. You know, usually when you come back with Tommy John, they say you're supposed to throw harder. At my age, I didn't throw harder. I threw the same. Uh, I didn't think about retiring, and quite frankly, I didn't think about retiring even when I was with Houston and I got released in July. I, hmm. I felt that I was still could still could compete. I w- I've always wished I would have finished my career with the Mets, but uh, unfortunately they said time, you know, we're gonna move in another direction, which was mm-hmm. rightfully so. I went to Houston, I, I started off really well, but uh, things didn't didn't pan out there. I didn't pitch particularly well uh, for about a couple of weeks and I got released and then uh, came home. You know, after that I gave myself about three weeks to say if uh, not another team doesn't call for me, I'm just gonna call it quits. So it was a pretty good pretty good career. And my agents kept telling me there were some teams that were interested. And I waited I waited. A couple of teams wanted me to go to the minor leagues to pitch. And I didn't want to do that. And that two of the teams were in contention to the playoffs. And I didn't want to just go from sitting at home to right there. Because I don't think it would be fair to me and would be fair to the organization. So July 31st came. Nobody called. August 2nd, I was on a plane. And I went to Italy for three weeks. So uh-huh. that's how I retired. And while I was in Italy, how funny. Molto <laughs> not- <laughs> not- <laughs>
2: not- not- bene.
3: Yeah, Matt, Matt Galanti called me in 2005. It was and called me and said he was named manager of Team Italy for the up and coming World Classic and wanted to know if I wanted to be his pitching coach the following year. And I say, how funny is this? I'm standing on a balcony looking in a, in a vineyard in Italy. So, uh, yeah, that Chris, that thought never crossed my mind. Uh, you know, maybe I should have thought about that. But you know, as always, say they got to rip this uniform off of me. You know, they got to take it off of me. But uh, and I never crossed my mind at that time, but uh, unfortunately for me, it didn't work out in Houston. And that year, Houston went to the World Series. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't stealing signals, yet. I don't think of that. No, right? no, no. Not, not, <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, John, but, I wanted to ask you, um, because any Met fan in their right mind will remember pictures of your son, JJ, uh, coming to games and watching you. What's it been like for you to watch him grow up, go on to university, get an Ivy League degree, and then go on to play uh, minor league baseball. It
3: was great. I mean, I was very proud of him. Uh, you know, he went to Poly Prep High School, made all kind of honors at Poly Prep High School, scholastically and athletically. Then went on to Brown University, and he was a four-year starter at Brown at second base, and then got drafted by the Atlanta Braves. Uh, played his first full season with them. He, he uh, I think, it was 340. Oh. And the second season, unfortunately, he had an injury. He tore his whole pectoral muscle off his bone, and uh, oh. he missed like a year and a half and unfortunately for him, they, they released him. The White Sox picked him up, and again, he did well with the White Sox, hitting close to 300, and then in baseball, it's a numbers game, and he got, he got released there, and then it was with the Mets, Finally, he did really well with the Mets. It just didn't work out for him. Uh, he, he made it to Double A. am very proud of him. Uh, right now, he uh, just got accepted into uh, business school at Columbia University, so he's going to be going for getting his master's. And uh, we're very proud of him for the way he, uh, he handled himself on the field and off the field. But having him, having him with me at the ballpark and watching him grow, he had his own locker, his own uniform, and watching him grow into a, a fine young man is, uh, I'm very proud.
2: It's every kid's fantasy. I, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to have my dad be a major league ball player. I remember, you know, Chris and I, as lifelong Met fans, both have our moments of metum. For me, it was in 2000 when I got to be the public address announcer for a few games, which was like every kid's fantasy to be able to announce somebody coming up to bat or somebody coming in the game to pitch. And for Chris, a couple of years ago, got to throw out opening pitch. What was that like for you, Chris? Standing on the same mound as John. Yeah, well, that. that well, actually, it wasn't because you didn't pitch at City Field. I,
1: it was at City Field. But uh, yeah,
3: hold on, Rick. I. See, I opened City Field. You I opened. You threw out the first pitch. right? pitch. St. John's is playing Georgetown, so I stepped right. on the before anybody else. <laughs> I did.
1: I did just finish reading that. You threw out the first first pitch at City yeah. Field, so yeah, yes.
2: uh,
1: which is quite an honor. But I will. I will say this. I mean, that was probably one of the most nerve-wracking moments I've <laughs> ever had. I've been on national television and never thought about it and felt that nervous. All I didn't want to Baba it. I didn't want to city scent. It. I just wanted to get it over the plate. And I'm warming up with my son on the field before the game. And I said, should I do a wind up? And he said, Dad, keep it simple. Not too much movement, because you're going to screw it up once you start doing that. So it was more of a a toss. But at least it reached. I made it. And my knee stopped shaking by the time I got back into the dugout.
3: I I always tell the celebrities who are throwing out the first pitch, I always tell them, aim high. Try to hit the catcher in the head. Yeah. Yeah. But the, no, that the, the, that was the, perfect. The Baba Booey story was funny because we were telling him. We kept telling him the whole day, "Don't bounce it! Don't bounce it! Don't bounce!" It. And listen, there's only 40,000 people watching you. Don't worry about it. Nobody's going to see fair. anything. And he'd he'd bounce it, he, he, he it man. We, saw, we were laughing so hard.
1: I mean, that that poor guy will never never uh, get through that one. They they've talked about him attempting it again, but he's still so you know he's he's so <laughs> frightened by the by the he, he's about, by it. <laughs> <and> really is. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to run a, a bunch of quick questions at you without thinking too much. Uh, if you if you'd be willing to sort of give an answer, what was your, who's your toughest hitter to get out? Tony Gwynn. That's a good one. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, what was your favorite ballpark to pitch in outside of Chase Stadium? Uh,
3: I like the old ballpark. I I, I love Wrigley Field. I love pitching in Boston a couple of times when we were up there. But Wrigley Field was everybody. You know, when you're pitching in and you go there and the wind's blowing out, everybody says, "Oh God, I don't want to pitch today because the wind's blowing out." But uh, yeah. I always looked at it Look, if you pitch, you make your pitches, and, and you know if a guy hits a home run off your pitch, fine. If not, but I always like the place. I like the, the the stadiums with the grass because I was a sinker yeah. ball pitcher, and uh, and the grass would slow those balls down, whereas the astroturf those balls would get through through the
2: I remember it was a big deal when you were with the Mets and Mike Piazza came and you gave up your number thirty-one so that Mike could wear that. I wanted to know how did you. Uh, Choose 31 as a number to begin with. Was it lucky?
3: No, oh, it was in my locker. That's the number they give you when you get called up. To the- <laughs> uh, that's uh, honest. I mean, Not right? <laughs> I had pretty good success in Cincinnati with it. And I didn't care if they gave me a number 197, I was going to wear no gonna with it. So that, no. that's how we got that number. Bernie Stowe, who's the clubhouse guy at the Cincinnati Reds, that was my number there. And uh, I won two outstanding pitching awards in the Cincinnati organization after a pitcher named Jim Maloney. Who was a left-handed pitcher, I and mean, he wore number thirty-one also. So it was kind of kind of nice to get that uh, same contrast with him. And out of
1: you know the, the headlines of your accomplishments, to you personally, which one meant the most? You know, you're a, fo- a four-time All-Star, a two-time uh, role-age relief guy. You're in the Mets Hall of Fame. Anything in particular of, in the accomplishments of your career that stands out and will mean the most to you?
3: Well, just the longevity and the consistency that I had over the years. I mean. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, accomplishments along the way. There's been some hard times along the way, a lot of hard work, but just the, the longevity of being consistent year in and year out. I would set goals every year where I didn't want my ERA to be above three. Mm-hmm. I try to set 30 saves a year as one of my goals uh, and just try to be the best pitcher I can every time out there. Everything else would fall into place from that. Because if you start saying, I want to win, you know, is relief, or I want to make the all-star team, you know, those things I have no control over. You know, people vote for the role aids and vote for the all stars. So, you just I can only control what I can control.
2: How do you like middle age? Uh,
3: it's okay. You know, I just try to try to, try to keep active, man. You know, I, I still work out four or five, four or five days a week. I, uh, I had a routine before the, uh, the, the, the the pandemic, the corona hit. But I would be in my gym in the building and work out for about an hour and a half, two hours. I'd do an hour of cardio and then I'd do my lifting. And now, since this happened, uh, even though I, I incorporated it into my apartment, I'm doing 200 sit-ups, 200 push-ups a day. And I walk uh, probably three or four times a week, with my wife, Rose, about three or four miles. Uh, she's a warrior. She runs every day, four or five miles. She runs up 10 flights of steps. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I've got a- off. I've done so, yeah, I've done so much running in my career. This I'm done running, but I'll do a fast-paced walk. or You know, in the, in the building, we have the elliptical machines or the stationary bikes, and that's what I like to do now. Uh, my joints, my joints and my body are starting to catch up to me. Everything's starting to hurt a little bit more. But I, I would, I mean,
1: you personally, do you really, I'm not going to give away the number that you are age-wise, because it's the same number as both of us, actually, Rick and I as well. Uh, do you suppose look at the number and think, that can't be. I yeah. can't possibly be this age. No yeah. way. Because when you were younger and you thought of that age, you probably thought you'd be an old man by then.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of scary a little bit because yeah, you know, yeah I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be sixty, you know. Yeah. And I was like, damn. And yeah. I, remember, I remember when I first got to the big leagues, Dave Parker told me, "Hey, man, enjoy it. It goes fast." And I said, "Nah, you know, <laughs> twenty years, twenty years flew by, you know." But yeah. uh, you know. It's just a number. You're only as old as you feel. If you try to stay active and eat right, uh, You know, every once in a while you go off that, uh, make a, a, a left turn and you kind of pig out a little bit and drink a little bit too much once in a while. But if you try to stay healthy, but it, yeah, it is kind of scary, but uh, it is what it is. It's a sort of life, you know? You're born exactly. and you die. <laughs> in between you pay taxes. A <laughs> <laughs> fair amount. Quick question about, you talk about diet and, and being in a... Like,
1: does not probably grasp the uh, there's something within the Italian uh culture, what they call it, sauce or gravy. What was it in your house, guys? sauce? Me too, yeah. I don't understand this gravy thing. Gravy is what you
3: like. put on a roast beef or something, exactly. It's like brown, it's meat. Come on, yeah, yeah. All right, sauce.
2: I'm gonna jump in and ask, last supper, if you had to pick, what would it be? Oh. <laughs>
3: mm. Wow, there's so many good dishes. Oh man, I, I uh, obviously it'd be a, some type of pasta. My my mother used to make a great lasagna. Probably my mm-hmm. mother's lasagna, or uh, a nice. I'm just I'm no simple guy. A nice dish of pasta with some good meatballs mm-hmm. you go.
2: and gravy, oh, sauce.
3: Oh. <laughs> we're making a tiny out of you yet, Rick? Yeah, we're gonna get to
2: them. <laughs> I'm working on it.
1: <laughs> well. So in moving forward for, for you at this point, John, is there anything in particular that you want to accomplish, keep going? I know, you are you still involved in the, in the you have a camp?
3: Is that uh, still going on? Yeah, well, I'm still involved. A couple of years ago, myself, uh, a guy named Gary Perone who works for the Cyclones and uh, Craig Carton, who used to work for WFAN. Uh, we came together and we formed this uh, baseball tournament called the Borough Cup. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is uh, teams all around the five boroughs get together and they play a tournament round robin tournament from ages uh, 9 to 14 and we felt that a lot of the kids and a lot of organizations take their kids out of the city to play tournaments in whether it's Maryland, South Carolina, whatever and it's very very expensive so we felt that uh, if we could do a tournament here and save some money for the kids and their parents uh, and and to have a nice, nice tournament here where the older kids would play their final games at Yankee Stadium and the younger mm-hmm. kids play their final game with championship games at the Keyspan Park uh, or Cyclone Park right. in Brooklyn. And we've been pretty successful with that. Uh, we, we, we did a couple of things where we did some college, we did some college uh, high school kids, some college showcases for college coaches to come down and to watch these kids. A lot of the kids in the New York area uh, kind of get overlooked because some of the scouts and some of the colleges don't want to go into these particular neighborhoods where they play. So what we did was we would have a a little uh, showcase at uh, every Sunday morning with some uh, local uh, high school coaches and some uh, uh, retired or current uh, athletes, professional baseball players who were home at the time to give instructions and show their skills to these kids. And some college coaches would come and see these kids. And and we've been pretty successful with that. And the other thing is this, you know, uh, I still enjoy baseball. I still uh, enjoy being part of baseball. Uh, I took a little time off away from the Mets now, so just enjoy myself. And, uh, you know, waiting for the Veterans Committee. Maybe I'll get inducted to the National Hall of Fame uh, for that. Yeah.
2: And if we invited you to come back and talk with us again, could we count on that?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: We have a special guest coming up in the next couple of weeks, I think, Chris, right?
1: Yeah, he's, he's a Boston Red Sox fan, though, Jeffrey Lyons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, a, I mean, an all-out crazy Boston Red Sox fan, But uh, so we're looking forward to that. Yeah, but, somebody,
3: John. Somebody's got to be. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> he's the one. Uh-huh. But thanks so much, really, for giving so much of your time today. To really? That. And can't wait to see everybody back out there playing again. And eventually, down the road, stadiums filled again and uh, hopefully you'll be involved in, in some part of that as well. So uh, again, thanks so much for giving up your time today and getting to rehash your career, which was an amazing one, really, it really
3: was. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you guys having me on, and both uh, you guys and your family, just be safe, and I'm uh, sure we'll get through this uh, like we have gone through many other tragedies and uh, horrific things uh, here in the city. We'll get through this. Uh, New Yorkers are tough, you know that. No, we'll make it. And, and right. same for you and your family as well. Okay, take care. Yeah, John, really a pleasure. All right. Take care. We'll be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care, boy. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, just, I, I
2: got to tell you.
1: Just being Met fans, that was a lot of fun to have an interview like that. Uh, you know
2: what? Uh, John really is a prince amongst men. He is just a, a real solid citizen. That's the thing. I like about him is he's really maintained his roots through all of this and all his success over the years.
1: Yeah, the genuineness uh, about all of the stories that he was telling and one of the things that stuck out to me is how he remembers the names and these people who helped him along the way right from high school college level on up uh, and none of these are necessarily household names of superstars but they were people that took the time uh, to guide him and give him some guidance in his career. And man, he hasn't forgotten that. And that speaks to his character, that he's still paying homage and respecting these people for you know how they helped him.
2: It really does. And and that's typically who John is. And that's why I think he was so endeared. Um, I can't speak for Cincinnati. I'm sure he was. But as a Met player, where he was awarded the, the Captain C, um, he was really highly revered by the Mets and by their fans and by other ball players as well. I think it's a crime that he's not in the Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, you know, when I started looking at the stats of his career, I knew he was a great relief pitcher, but then you start to see him stacked up against some of the greatest, and this guy's right up there. I mean, the most saves by a lefty. Right. Uh, he's number five all time. I mean, there have been some amazing closers. Number five? And, yeah, he, he really is uh, – he's right there, worthy of, of being in the Hall of Fame, absolutely.
2: Let me ask you a question because uh, you had touched on it before. Uh, interestingly about how John remembered people early on in his career, whether it was an equipment manager or um, um, a trainer or somebody, John was really apt to talk about those people behind the scenes to help him get where he was. Was that the case for you in your TV career?
1: That's interesting, because I've I've occasionally thought about that, and I started my career more on the radio side doing weather, and television sort of came, I was almost 30, which is like old, uh, but I was almost 30 (laughs) when I got my first television job. So, uh, but I would say the person who I first came in contact with that taught me how to have fun doing what we were doing, delivering, don't just deliver the weather forecast, make it fun, make it interesting. Uh was a gentleman by the name of Pat Pagano. He was the, the president uh, along with Craig Allen, who's been doing weather on radio for many, many years and television in the New York area. Uh, but Pat was the president of the company and Pat taught me via radio uh, how to have fun with it. And he really was the one that started to shift me into bringing personality and telling a story when you were delivering the weather information. So he's probably the most, you know, the person that stands out the most to me. But- um, Pat's name
2: is a name I remember from my days out on Long Island radio, because Pat was, I guess, the meteorologist for WALK, which was our right? main mm-hmm. competition. So I did, anyway, I, did. I, I, did many years. I guess that brings us to the end of a, a really um, spectacular time with John. I'm so yeah. glad we had the opportunity to talk with him.
1: There was, a one, there was one other story that stood out to me, which is kind of interesting, and it, it, this is why it's great getting John's perspective because he was so honest. Now, you and I being Met fans, a Subway series, especially when we were, you know, growing up through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, just didn't seem like anything we were ever going to see really happen. But the Mets and Yankees right. were championship years together and actually play. I mean, back in the 40s and 50s, it was almost a an every year occurrence with the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Yankees. The Yankees always won, of course. But... When I brought that up to John, while he said, yeah, it was awesome, it wasn't as incredible because they had started interleague play a few yeah. years before that. And, but it was interesting for him to, because sometimes they would interview players about interleague play, the subway series in New York, and they'd brush it off. Nah, it's not a big deal. Nah, it's like any other game. Yeah, But John was like, oh, it wasn't. B.S. That was bragging rights for New York. So by the time they got to the actual real subway series, well, it was, it's you know, it's the World Series, that's the the big boy. Uh, I guess it wasn't quite intimidating and or spectacular to them because they had played the Yankees before. I thought that was kind of neat.
2: John's credit, and you can hopefully back me up on this, the Yankees beat the Mets four games to one in the 2000 World Series, and John got the win.
1: Yeah, he had the only game. Uh, I believe he pitched... Pretty, I think he pitched a few scoreless innings in, in that uh, World Series. And yeah. yeah, he did a great job in his in his, his first and only World Series. It took him a long time to get there. But
3: yeah. uh, again,
1: great uh, that he, he took the time out to spend with us. We really appreciated that. I hope we get to see him back in, back in the game. Me too, yeah. Uh, next episode, real quick, before we say goodbye, we've got Jeffrey Lyons, who is a big Boston Red Sox fan. But on his resume, uh, he's been a, a TV critic for many, many years in New York and nationally. He's had syndicated shows. He's been an actor, that's on his resume as well. He's run with the Bulls, and he's hung out with Ernest Hemingway. And apparently he's in the midst of writing a book about uh, some of his experiences with Ernest Hemingway. So that should be a fun interview that's coming up. So we're
2: gonna let Jeffrey shoot the ball about running with Uh, the (laughs) Bulls.
1: And I'm sure we're gonna have to hear a lot about the Red Sox, so we better get ready for that too. (laughs) All right, with with that- Let's check out. Yeah, everybody stay well, sunshine always, and we'll see you around the corner, Rick.
2: He did feel good.
1: Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five stars, no begging. Uh, we're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at that's BLEAB.com, that's dot com, and at BLEAB Podcast.